This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no physical contact. This is Encounter 302, Ashtar Watches Over Us. We know that George Adamski wasn't the only contactee, and actually, after last week, we know that Adamski wasn't even really the first contactee of the modern flying saucer era. See, I told you I'd keep bringing that up. Another lesson we can take from last time's look at the Borderlands Science Research Associates and their explanations into etheric beings is that some participants in the paranormal and contactee cultures of the time were very accepting of psychic or channeled messages this was by no means universal. And outside the contactee sector, these sorts of psychic or mental connections were dismissed even more harshly than physical contact claims. And this week, we're going to look at a set of psychical or mental contact claims that are probably among the most harshly dismissed among all of them by nuts and bolts flying saucer types, both at the time, sort of contemporarily, and all the way up to the present. We're going to look at the development of the character, I guess we can say, of Ashtar, um, an extraterrestrial being first contacted by George Van Tassel in the 1950s, and whom other people have claimed to have had channelings from all the way up until the present. So come along with me, and we'll meet Ashtar, Hatan, and the rest of their merry crew. Okay, so we're starting with George Van Tassel, another California contactee who is a key figure in the ongoing development of contacteeism from the 1950s until his death in 1978. He wrote several books, including his first, the outstandingly titled I Rode a Flying Saucer, not I Rode in a Flying Saucer, I Rode a Flying Saucer. Uh, in, in this book, he detailed what he saw as the origins and meaning of the contacts and visitations that he and others had experienced. While I Rode the Flying Saucer is significant for a number of reasons, um, key among them are the contrast between this book and Adamski's Flying Saucer tales. And the biggest contrast is that Van Tassel's contacts, much like what Mark Probert experienced that we saw in Encounter 30, um, what is it, 302? One, I guess it is. Um, like Mark Probert's, these were messages from outer space channeled from beings that were not entirely physical, or from Van Tassel's perspective, not physical at all. The contacts he had were psychic. They were channeled. The second um, edition of I Wrote a Flying Saucer is pretty short. It's only 50 pages long, and it's a series of transmissions from various space beings that Van Tassel claimed to receive between January of 52 and March of 53. And they're really repetitive, and the book honestly has little to say, but Van Tassel would go on from there and expand on all sorts of messages in these works. Um, and the biggest thing that these books contributed was the character of Ashtar. Now, Ashtar is an extraterrestrial being who commands a fleet of spacecraft that surround the Earth. Because Ashtar's messages were channeled, because Van Tassel didn't claim to have physical 
interpersonal contact with them in person, um, with Ashtar and, and, and others, that means later Flying Saucer believers are able to sort of bring Ashtar into their own stories. They're able to channel Ashtar, or honestly, they're able to claim they channeled Ashtar. Ashtar becomes the center of various storylines, or at least a, a continuity that lasts decades. Van Tassel's first book established his credentials within the aerospace industry through his work with uh, corporations like Douglas and uh, Lockheed. He moved to Giant Rock Airport, which he operated at the time of his contact experiences, and Giant Rock would be the site of many annual flying saucer meetings and conventions all the way into the 1970s. Like other contactees, Van Tassel was not, you know, sort of reticent about making sure readers knew there was a, a higher purpose to his flying saucer stories. A blurb on the title page of I Rode a Flying Saucer says that the book has been radiant, that's the word he uses, to you by other world intelligences in reaction to man's destructive action, end quote. So why are the aliens talking to us? Because we're going to destroy ourselves. In the introduction, um, he sort of explains this viewpoint further, preparing the reader to be receptive to the messages that he is going to convey to them. Today, man builds the means to destroy. Realize that you and your loved ones are at present victims of continual destructive influences. Listen to that inner voice that will cause you to recognize truth when it appears. I suppose I'm pretty cynical, but I imagine if somebody didn't believe Van Tassel's story, it was because they weren't listening to that inner voice that notified them when truth was apparent. So while the contact between George Van Tassel and the space beings was intangible and etheric, if you will, he explains the mechanism of these psychic contacts in a way that is really very sort of technological and materialistic rather than spiritual. Man views television, listens to radio, rides in airplanes, and causes all these things to operate through or on or in an unseen medium. He cannot even see his own thought, the unseen intelligence that caused these material things to be manufactured. Yet man goes through his daily life accepting this unseen intelligence without question. So messages from the space beings are like radio or television waves. You can tune into them. That's a different approach, I think, from the channelings of Mark Probert. Probert and um, Mead Lane were deeply rooted in that spiritualist tradition, as we talked about, and were speaking to an audience both familiar with it and probably largely accepting of that tradition. I need to go back and check, but I'm pretty sure that Van Tassel doesn't, for example, use the word seance like Probert does. This is psychic contact for, for the space-age reader rather than for readers that are rooted in 19th century spiritualism. The 51 transmissions that Van Tassel records in I Wrote a Flying Saucer are honestly pretty grim. The first transmission from January 6, 1952, sets up the context of the space visitors. I am Lutbun, senior in command, first wave, planet patrol, realms of Shari. We have your contact 80,000 feet above this place. Your press will have more to report on your so-called flying saucers. We return your contact. Discontinue. 
In subsequent messages, uh, Lutbun and her or his colleagues introduced themselves, established a backstory of a constellation of saucers and way stations sort of filling Earth's galactic neighborhood, and they all report back to a central group called, um, unsurprisingly, the Center. Another message, this one from May 2nd, 1952, features a figure with a familiar name to moviegoers, although it's spelled a bit differently. Greetings. I am Klaatu, Second Projection, Fourth Wave, Third Sector Patrol, Realms of Shari. Are you prepared for us to alight? We know the orders are to destroy us, shoot us down if necessary, to discover how we are made. I am instructed to inform you we cannot be shot down. Your Pentagon recently arrived at a conclusion that we are of a higher intelligence. They did not decide, however, that we are also of a higher authority. In your next four months, commencing now, watch the skies. Look to the east. Rest assured, when we descend, we will not be able to carry on a personal conversation with most of those in official capacity. We shall land. Discontinue. Is Van Tassel's Klaatu the same as the character Klaatu from 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still? I honestly don't know. Um, if it is meant to be, then this opens up some really intriguing possibilities about breaching the fact-fiction barrier and things like that. The entry for July 18th, 1952, introduces our new hero, Ashtar. Ashtar is the chief of the extraterrestrials with whom Van Tassel has been communicating and is introduced by Portia, presumably some sort of extraterrestrial aide-de-camp and not the Shakespearean character. Ashtar's message is more extensive than those relayed to Van Tassel by previous contacts. Hail to you, beings of Shan. I greet you in love and peace. My identity is Ashtar, Commandant, Quadrasector, Patrol Stations Shari, all projections, all waves. Greetings. Through the Council of the Seven Lights, you have been brought here. Inspired with the inner light to help your fellow man, you are mortals, and other mortals can only understand that which their fellow man can understand. The purpose of this organization is, in a sense, to save mankind from himself. Some years ago, your time, your nuclear physicists penetrated the Book of Knowledge. They discovered how to explode the atom. Disgusting as the results have been, that this force should be used for destruction, it is not compared to that which can be. We have not been concerned with their explosion of plutonium. This atom is an inert element. We are concerned, however, with their attempt to explode the hydrogen element. This element is life-giving, along with five other elements in the air you breathe, in the water you drink, in the composition of your physical self. In much of your material planet is this life-giving atomic substance, hydrogen. When they explode the hydrogen atom, they shall extinguish life on this planet. They are tinkering with a formula they do not comprehend. They are destroying a life-giving element of the creative intelligence. Our message to you is this. You shall advance to your government all information we have transmitted to you. You shall request that your government shall immediately contact all Earth nations regardless of political feelings. The explosion of an atom of inert substance and that of a living substance are two different things. We are not concerned with man's desire to continue war on his planet, Shan. We are concerned with their deliberate determination to extinguish humanity and turn this planet into a cinder. Your materialists will disagree with our attempt to warn mankind. Rest assured they shall cease to explode life-giving atoms or we shall eliminate all projects connected with such. 
Our missions are peaceful, but this condition occurred before in the solar system, and the planet Lucifer was torn to bits. We are determined that it shall not happen again. The governments and the planet Shan have conceded that we are of a higher intelligence. They must concede also that we are of higher authority. We do not have to enter their buildings to know what they are doing. Your purpose here has been to build a receptivity that we could communicate with your planet. For, by the attraction of light substance atoms, we patrol your universe. To your government and to your people, and through them to all governments and all peoples on the planet Shan, accept the warning as a blessing that mankind may survive. My light, we shall remain in touch here at this cone of receptivity. My love, I am Ashtar. Once again, as we saw with some of Mark Probert's information, some of the extraterrestrials are not willing to sit by and watch Earth be destroyed. The reference to the ancient destruction of a planet called Lucifer in the solar system is a nice touch as well, and fits in with this world-building that, uh, that Van Tassel is doing. Van Tassel's closing of I Rode a Flying Saucer gives some instructions for how humans should react to our new friends in the neighborhood. The saucer beings are here to stay, to direct man back upon the path. Greet the saucer beings with thoughts of love and receive them as friends, not with jets and guns and fear. One of the things I think is really cool about all of this is the way that Van Tassel spends a lot of time on the world building, constructing a setting and a cast of characters and even a language. Earth's sort of space name is Shan, and a flying saucer is really called a Ventla. All of this provides a world into which readers can escape if they want to. It's not presented as fiction, but it's kind of constructed in the way that a fictional story might be. This means that the character of Ashtar and the protective mission of his subordinates to sort of guard the Earth can expand beyond what even Van Tassel would write. His subsequent works would, would expand beyond the material realm of the flying saucers and develop in more overtly spiritualist directions. Additionally, by the time his second book was published uh, in 1956, uh, Van Tassel had established something called the College of Universal Wisdom, an organization for spreading the wisdom of the Space Brothers with newsletters and meetings. And along with the College of Universal Wisdom and, and the saucer conventions at Giant Rock that I mentioned before, one of the most impressive and lasting things that Van Tassel accomplished was probably the construction of a structure called the Integratron, which doesn't really work very well to explain verbally, so check out the show notes for some links on this amazing structure. Van Tassel continued writing on flying saucer matters until near the end of his life in 1978, but neither the character of Ashtar nor the concept of discussing um, things with exalted entities from space through psychic channeling ended with Van Tassel. As he continued to host channeling sessions from Ashtar and other beings at his uh, Universal Wisdom meetings, some people thought that there was more that could be done with such contacts. There was a flying saucer magazine newsletter called Interplanetary News, which was run by a guy named Bill Rose, who also went by the name Robert Short. Now, there's, there's conflicting reports about the, the sort of conflict between Van Tassel and Rose. Uh, some people say that it was just a difference of opinion um, over the interpretation of channelings. Uh, for example, Van Tassel thought that Rose's messages from Ashtar were not accurate. 
I've read other things that suggest that um, Van Tassel was not pleased with the way that Rose was focusing on sort of finding ways to monetize the Ashtar messages. There's a split in the Ashtar community. Bill Rose began a rival organization called Ashtar Command. By 1955, a number of channeled messages from Ashtar Command began to appear in newsletters, magazines, and, and flying saucer book publishers. One example of this is a book called In Days to Come, which was published in 1957 by a woman named Ethel P. Hill, who was channeling Ashtar. New Age publishers, who released In Days to Come, had this to say about the reason for publishing the book and the reason for spreading the message. There are many who feel that Ashtar and his legions are the forerunners of the second coming of Christ, no matter how this is understood. Some expect to see him in the flesh. Others believe that the spirit of Christ will eventually rule the earth and the spiritually unfit will be eliminated. At any rate, many people feel that our so-called culture is nearing its end and that something is about to happen. A change must come both in world affairs and in religion, whose doctrines were fashioned not by Jesus but by medieval priests in order to keep the ignorant in spiritual bondage to the church. This grandiosity is not unusual in contactee writing, and it's not surprising. As people who had as their goal the reformation of the very foundations of Cold War society, it would have been a little startling not to encounter a little bit of hubris. In the introduction to In Days to Come, Ashtar, speaking through Ethel Hill, sets out the major themes about which he'll be speaking. In many ways, it's a contactee greatest hits collection, including such topics as nuclear weapons. A predominance of resolution by the inhabitants themselves must precede our entrance on the scene en masse to use our superior powers in augmenting those possessed by mortals at this time. Yes, I most certainly do refer to the H-bomb and other highly dangerous explosives. It is one thing to compound and explode such a hellish contrivance, but where is the mortal who has solved the problem of preventing its explosion or nullifying its deadly effect? No such person exists on the planet Shan. How dare they release a force of such magnitude without the slightest idea how to control it? Ashtar also refers to the universal law, which will force Ashtar and his compatriots to accept only total peace on Earth. We spacemen, in whatever capacity we may temporarily serve, are irrevocably pledged by the most solemn of oaths to abide by those universal laws which alone can preserve life on every level of conscious existence. To accept or condone any variance from these fixed and unchangeable codes governing all honorable behavior would be to forfeit privileges we have earned through eons of unremitting effort. We will have no part in any sort of form of synthetic peace it must be genuine, unalloyed, incapable of dissimulation. And there's a very sort of salvific, we have come to help you sort of tone to this as well. We come as your defenders and deliverers. We come at the urgent request of your heavenly father to release you from insufferable bondage. My love and blessings. So after that introduction, once the body I guess, of the channeling begins, there's a weird shift in tone. Ashtar moves to this sort of affected style of speech. It's, uh, it's like the King James Bible, and that makes sense because the warnings sort of sound like something that you would put in 
a sort of sequel to the Bible, if you were putting such a thing together. Um, for example, there's this recurring theme in, um, in Days to Come of the inevitability of a battle between the forces of good and evil. In chapter 1, Ashtar promises that the victors in this coming conflict are going to be those who place their trust in God. I say to thee in all sacred solemnity of pronouncement, this thy country shall be saved as by a miracle. I say not, it will be a peaceful deliverance, but through the unfaltering loyalty of millions who place their faith in thy master, the Christ of God, this land will be cleansed from the abominations now infesting it. This is similar to some sort of eschatological interpretations of biblical prophecy. Indeed, beginning with the title, there's a strong sort of tone of prophecy and, and predetermined future history throughout the book that's not as prominent in earlier contactee narratives, but is a little reminiscent of some of the things we saw from Mark Probert's channelings last time, particularly, I think, from Lao Tzu. Luckily for humanity, Ashtar and his subordinates are in orbit to support those who choose to fight on the side of light. No matter how grievous be the suffering of many mortals in this final phase of the transformation of thy world, all who will stand firm in their defense of the right, on whatever battlefield they fight, will soon realize that they have rendered a priceless service to their master and his conquering legions from outer space, now able to traverse the hitherto impenetrable density of Earth's auric envelope and bring succor and strength to the Christ forces in mortal flesh. It's weird. There's this, we're all going to be doomed, Unless you accept the truth of what Ashtar and his people are telling you. That sounds like a religion, and it kind of is. This is the point where we veer into UFO religion. It's not surprising that you are way more likely to see discussion of Ashtar, Ashtar Command, this whole genre of contactee belief, not in typical UFO or flying saucer books, but in scholarly studies of new and emerging religions in the mid to late 20th century. There's a number of scholarly works out there. This is the angle at which the Ashtar adherents are coming at this from. Ethel Hill would not be the last to channel Ashtar. Um, the Supreme Commander would emerge time and time again. The story of Ashtar Command, this massive fleet stationed around Earth, and the future of humanity would especially continue in the 1970s and 80s. And even with the advent of the internet in the 90s and 21st century, the messages attributed to Ashtar, as well as to other people like Hatan and Soltek and the rest of this cosmic cast of clowns, would become increasingly diverse and splintered. During the 70s and 80s, and there's a sort of a lull in part of the 60s, 70s and 80s, Ashtar comes roaring back. Um, this time, um, there's a degree of, a more higher degree of unification. There is an Ashtar command channeler who sort of becomes the prime channeler. Um, she's calling herself Tuella, but her real name was uh, Thelma Terrell. Tuella's channelings from Ashtar and other beings continued the work of George Van Tassel, but with a different focus. Van Tassel spent a great deal of time in his messages discussing the origins of humanity and the universe and spinning explanations of scientific phenomenon, the, the operating principles behind flying saucers and other alien technology. Tuella, on the other hand, creates this story of a vast interplanetary political and social system, she develops Ashtar, Soltek, 
Hatan, Kathumi, and others into a cast of characters who don't just send her messages, they interact with each other. Tuella also urged internal, personal transformation, not just societal change. In the preface to her 1982 book, Project World Evacuation, Tuella discusses the possibility that some of her readers might be extraterrestrials inhabiting human bodies or working towards some manner of enlightenment or connection with higher powers. If your inner truth identifies you as a volunteer from another realm or world on assignment to Earth, these words are for you. If you are persuaded you are one of the star people, you will read this volume with awareness and clarity. If you are a disciple or initiate of the higher revelation, you will discern and perceive the purpose of this message from other dimensions of being. If you are a growing, glowing Christian, just beginning to look up and outward beyond the walls of man-made divisions of earthly ecclesiastical hierarchies, your heart will witness to these things. If you are not consciously any of these, read not to scoff, but to hold these revelations in your heart while you wait and see. So, this book is for nearly everyone, except the actively, aggressively skeptical. Tuella is the one who's doing the channeling of all of these ascended masters in orbit. But you, you, my friend, may actually be one of those masters. You just need some spiritual prompting, which you will receive from reading and accepting what Tuella is channeling. Project World Evacuation serves as an introduction to the Ashtar Command's plan for Earth and humanity. The Lord Sananda Jesus has sent messengers to teach humanity how to achieve, quote, an elevated approach to life. Since the beginning of time, he sent these messengers. Some listened, many did not. Now, according to Ashtar Command, it is time to separate those groups in keeping with their choices, and let those who refuse the advancement of their being remain together according to their own desires. The few who have burned within their hearts to find the ultimate reality will be permitted to follow these aspirations in the setting of a new world, cleansed and made bright by universal action. Okay, since we ignored the messages of the Space Brothers in the 50s and 60s, the time has come for humanity to suffer the consequences of all its destructive behavior. The contactees of the 50s and 60s urged positive steps to change their behavior and, thus, their fate, such as eliminating nuclear weapons, war, greed, whatever. But really, those are policy issues. I can't go out into my street here in my subdivision and say, I renounce war! Because as an individual, I'm not really capable of carrying out a war in any sort of rational sense. Ashtar, speaking through Tuella, asserts that the challenges facing humanity, and humanity's friends among the stars, are much more complex. Inner disturbances taking place within the planet itself are direct reflections of the aspirations and the attitudes and vibrations of those who dwell upon it. We have repeatedly attempted to turn the thoughts of humanity toward the reality of divine truth and principles. We have dared to lower our craft into your frequencies in a visible way. So the suffering on the Earth is not only the result of the military and ecological practices, for example, of the world's leaders. The spiritual attitudes of humanity also play a role. 
These vibrational disturbances have a direct effect on the physical planet and those living upon it. Things are getting bad enough that Ashtar's associate Kathumi explains that the time has come for humanity to escape the Earth. Planetary changes have already taken place on inner levels within the auric field and the astral belt and surrounding regions. Soon these emanations will penetrate the physical octave and those who dwell thereon. The highest celestial councils have decreed that those chosen ones shall be personally removed from Earth, to be temporarily placed in a higher frequency within our domain. So given the need for these chosen ones to be removed from the planet, Ashtar Command has a plan in place for the rescue of those who are worthy. Kathumi claims there are missions of volunteers on the planet who are filled with light, who will help this uh, sort of apotheosis or ascension take place. But lest we think that the solution for all of humanity's problems is, is simply spiritual, Tuella does maintain a, a sort of tie to contactees of yore and their active promotion of peace. She channels um, Hatan, a, quote, great commander from a very high-ranking station who is honored by all who has this to say about the condition of humanity. Cannot your differences be reconciled in a peaceful way? There were times, eons ago, when some of our worlds had not yet found the solution. In their torment and thirst for power over others, they did also seek the great weapons of destruction and did cause much havoc within many constellations. Out of these problems, we of the Galactic Federation of Planets formed the Galactic Pact, which forbids warfare against another and the warlike ones who would not yield were removed from our midst. Now your world has projected itself into this chaotic time of unrest and threat due to the calculations of a few in your midst who will not yield to the peaceful way or the attitude of peace and love on Earth. Therefore, it is ordained that before this orbit into the Golden Age is fulfilled, the Earth will be prepared for its advancement by many changes. War will be removed, outlawed from your planet, and all the impurities of your way of life will be filtered away by the changing scene due to begin. There will be much turmoil in your midst, and much sorrow for those who have sought to instigate bloodshed upon Terra. Orthon was never this patronizing to Adamski. Um, Aura Reigns would never have been this pushy. There's a sense of fatalism again, because humanity probably won't change. The forces of light are justified in taking that choice away from humanity, rescuing those whose spirits are elevated to the proper level, and dealing with those who have not attempted to improve themselves. Here's Hatan again. We, therefore, have been authorized by the spiritual hierarchy to intervene in the affairs of Earth in the event of attempted nuclear holocaust. Intervention will come to you in the form of cataclysms of great magnitude. We plead with mankind to lay aside your arms and dismantle your stockpiles of death. I do now give my attention to the peacemakers among you. Your efforts are carefully recorded, and every effort of love to extend love amongst your fellows cannot be forgotten but your reward shall come to you. Further, you will not be expected to be a participant in the destructions you have labored so faithfully to avert. You will be removed from the chaos and sheltered in our ships that will come to escort you to safety. I have many times visualized this great event in my mind, marveling at the efficiency of the plan and the expertise of those who will bring it to completion. 
this sequence of events falls short of a prediction. There's enough what-if wiggle room here that if no nuclear exchange takes place during the lifetime of the Ashtar enthusiasts, that there's unlikely to be a feeling of letdown. If such an event were to occur, the Space Brothers have an extensive plan to deal with it, an idea which provides a degree of comfort to those who believed in the message, and a sense of superiority over those who don't believe in the message. Um, it's... You know, I can imagine them being very lackadaisical about the idea of nuclear war because they're going to be, I think, and I think this is the right use of the, the word, they're going to be raptured up to the spaceships. This is flying saucer rapture time, folks. You don't have to worry about nuclear war because if you oppose it enough, you're not going to suffer from it if it happens because the aliens know you opposed it and will rescue you. Another notable aspect of Tuella's writings is the manner in which she describes the individual space brothers uh, that she channels. Earlier contactees may have had generally good impressions of the extraterrestrials with whom they interacted. In the case of Truman Bethram, he had a very positive impression of Aura Rains, for example. But Tuella positively gushes about these folks. Um, she introduces Ashtar as... A beloved Christian commander and a very beautiful being. He is highly evolved in the upper worlds, very influential, and has a great benefactoring influence upon those he leads in the alliance of the Space Confederation. Commander Ashtar is the highest in authority for our hemisphere. He is also the commander of the starship upon which our beloved Lord and great commander Jesus Sananda spends so much of his time. He has the authority to clear any channel and interrupt and take over any communication from any source at any time upon our planet, yet he is gentle loving, devout, and totally inspiring as a great leader. In 1985, uh, Tuella dedicated an entire book to this sort of fawning treatment of Ashtar um, in the book entitled, appropriately, Ashtar, A Tribute. The book spends a lot of time reiterating the basics outlined in Project World Evacuation, but it's also sort of an extended love letter to Ashtar. We have attempted to compile those fragments which would help us best discern the heart of this beloved being, to appreciate his spiritual burden, his exemplary character, his depth of purpose, his unswerving loyalty to our Radiant One, and his dedication to the Kingdom of God on Earth. What a guy. Apart from praising every aspect of Ashtar in every possible way, another purpose of the book is to try to define Ashtar's role within the cosmic hierarchy and sort of establish some kind of continuity between the channeled messages that Tuella reported and others who have claimed to channel Ashtar in the past and even at the time. It's sort of, um, this is my comic book geek interior coming out. This is Crisis on Infinite Ashtars. In, in a strange sort of way. There's a bunch of different reports about Ashtar. Is he an alien? Is he God? Is he really an aspect of Jesus? Is he this? Is he that? For example, um, a Canadian channeler who featured an Ashtar attribute named uh, Oscar Magoshi um, tries to answer one of the major questions that had arisen about Ashtar. He is not an embodiment of an archangel, but is, nevertheless, participating in a very close relationship and very close cooperative cosmic representation of one of high administration at that level. It is not Archangel Gabriel, but is another. Within his own attributes of protector, defender, and enforcer, another archangel works in unison 
with the energies of Ashtar. So Ashtar isn't an angel, not an archangel. Specifically, he is not the archangel Gabriel, but he is overshadowed by an unnamed archangel. So he straddles the spiritual and non-spiritual worlds. He's an etheric, that is, non-physical being, but he's not an archangel himself. And Tuella herself in the book acknowledges that this explanation, quote, raises more questions than it answers. But all of this does, really. The heavy intrusion of, of Christian phrasing and imagery, if certainly not any orthodox form of Christian doctrine, the well-developed characterization, and almost the, the sort of spiritual crush that Tuella seems to have on Ashtar, all of this seems to suggest that the messages and the beings who supposedly sent them have transcended the larger flying saucer genre. Add to this the fact that others claim to channel the same beings, sometimes expressing very different philosophies and ideals, um, it just there's a universe of characters out there that are bigger than the flying saucer phenomenon, bigger than the flying saucer movement. In the future, for example, we're going to be looking at a series of newsletters from the 1990s in which the space being Hatan, who's been channeled by Tuella and others, is basically a full-on Nazi. Ashtar and his companions have taken on a, a life that is far beyond a simple saucer life. In our next encounter, we bring back Coral Lorenzen, who, along with her husband Jim, wrote Flying Saucer Occupants, one of the premier UFO books of the 1960s. And next time, we'll talk about why you should read it, and also examine the larger issue of UFO books here in the 21st century. You can follow along with us at SaucerLife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. Thanks to those who have left reviews on various services. We really appreciate it. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you. <laughs>